You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. We're your hosts, Jessica and Caroline, and today we're going international. And while Tom came back raving about the great food he got to enjoy, he was even more excited about the work happening at the Singapore American School. With their tradition of academic excellence, Singapore American School serves 4,000 preschool to 12th grade students. After serving as a district superintendent in Washington State, Dr. Chip Kimball joined Singapore as superintendent in 2012. The board asked Kimball to make the school as good at life prep as it was at college prep. And the six-year transformation that ensued is a remarkable story of reinvention at scale. Tom recently visited the school for a second time and talked with Chip about their progress. Deputy Superintendent Dr. Jennifer Sparrow, who has deep roots at Singapore American School and has led the academic team for 10 years, joins Chip and Tom to tell the Singapore American School story. Chip Kimball, Jennifer Sparrow, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's uh, really great to be back at the Singapore American School. It's been two years almost to the date, and I saw uh, so much great stuff over the last two days. Um, in fact, I saw 14 or 15 things that I think were really remarkable on this trip. And I, I want to quickly go through uh, a list of those, talk about talent, about the sort of care and guidance that I see kids uh, receiving here, and then talk about the high impact instructional strategies that I thought were really common. Um, before we dive into those, let's do a couple a, a couple words of background. So, Chip, you and I go back like 25 years. We're school administrators together in the state, state of Washington. Um, why Singapore? What, what was attractive about the job posting when you saw it in 2012? Yeah. So, I think what was really interesting about this particular professional challenge is that we had a a board uh, that was looking at a very successful school that by all traditional measures was one of the top in the world. And the board was worried about um, successfully escorting students to the doors of college, but not successfully escorting them to the doors of life. And they asked me to come in and rethink school within the context of a very successful school system. And because Singapore American School is the largest single campus international school in the world, the design challenge was how do you take a very successful school, make it even better, how do you do it to scale, and how do you do it in a context like Singapore, where you where, where, you, where it's the, 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 the meeting of East and West, uh, you've got cultural nuances, you've got competitive nuances, and you wrap all of that into an agenda of change. And that was extremely interesting for me. It, and we'll come back and talk about this, but one of the things the board wanted you to do was look at the facilities. Yes. And you said, no, actually, we should start with the academic program. Yeah. As, yeah, it was, it was fascinating. We had a, a champion board member on our, <clears throat> on our board who was an architect by training. And uh, in, my, in one of my first uh, experiences here, asked me to walk the campus and give my impressions of the, of the campus. 
and having built over 20 schools in Washington State, I said, well, the campus is okay, but it's not great. And, and she said, I knew it. <laughs> and, uh, and from there started this conversation. And, and they had asked me to develop a facility master plan. And what I said was, yes, there will be a time to do that, but you don't want to build a facility without having your pedagogy right. Because what you will be doing is simply reinforcing the old rather than encouraging the new. So we spent three years really looking at practices around the world, looking at schools around the world. You, you did. You had almost 100 faculty go to 100 schools. That's really, right. That's really, right. On six, on six continents. It, it may be the, the biggest and best example of school visits as professional learning that I know of. Yeah. And, and it's had this really profound impact that I saw evidence of in the last few days of there are a hundred people here that have a really powerful sense of what's possible because they've mm -hmm. seen it yeah. on multiple continents, right? And they really own the vision. It's not the Chip Kimball vision anymore. It's the, right. it's the SAS vision that's, that really runs deep because it's based on sort of global knowledge of what's possible. That's right. And so after that work, when, again, that was a, a pedagogical play, what did we think is, is possible for kids? It was after that that we started envisioning what a facility might look like, which resulted in a very comprehensive facility master planning process, which has now resulted in a facility master plan. We'll come back and talk about that. Um, Jennifer, you've been here almost 10 years. 20 years total. Is that right? Because I was here for 10 years as a teacher, left, you and then came back. And this is my, I was in Hong Kong for eight years as a so teacher. So you're officially an back. international educator. I, I'm only an international educator. I've through. never worked back in the U.S. Wow. Um, what drew you to SAS? Well, interesting story. My mom was actually teaching here. And my sister was a student, so she had wow. started here in seventh grade. So when my parents moved here and my sister started the school, of course, I um, contrasted my sister's experiences as a seventh grader at SAS with my experiences in Kansas and was very jealous. <laughs> um, and every Christmas and summer would come over and visit my parents. And because my mom was here at the school, would um, come, we actually lived right across from the old high school. And so, you know, was was in the presence of SAS from 1987 onwards. And so in 1990, I was required at, at the time, my teacher prep program required three student teaching stints. And so I did one of my student teaching stints here at SAS. Wow. And then when I graduated, my parents convinced me to come over and sub for a year or two to save money. Hmm. And that segued into a... Um, maternity leave coverage that I did and then that person decided not to return and they offered me the position and my career was launched. So my first job was here at SAS and I was here for, like I said, 10 years um, and then made the decision to go to Hong Kong. That's where I moved into admin and then when the position, my original role back here, the second stint was the Director of Assessment Educational Data, which is what I've been doing at HKS. What persuaded me to come back at that time is I think there, at the time, it was the superintendent prior to Chip, uh, Brett Munch, and he really was looking at how to start to evolve the system as opposed to each independent fiefdom of divisions. And he, um, he laid the groundwork for that. So he's the one who laid the groundwork for PLCs, which Chip built on. He's the one who started to look at, so for example, when I first came in, we developed K through 12 guidelines for assessment, for grading. None of that 
had happened before. And most international schools to this day don't exist as a system. They exist as divisions. Right. Um, and there's, there's so much autonomy. And so for me, it was just really intriguing to look at coming to a place where you could make systemic reform and not just pockets of reform. So I was here two years ago when there, there was a lot of work that was formative and, and in two years, you've really taken, you, you've implemented, uh, and many, um, many ideas at scale. And, uh, and I've been around the school a couple times and, um, and identified about 14 signs of progress that are really exciting. So I, I've grouped them into three categories. I want to start uh, by talking about the talent agenda. First of all, there's evidence that, that you have expressed a set of institutional uh, commitments that you're more clear about the the skills, competencies, the dispositions that you want in teachers and that you're expressing those better in hiring and, and also in the way that you're promoting growth and appraisal. Is that fair summary? Yeah, and, and actually I'd, I'd like to just kind of back up a, a smidge and say that one of my conclusions from a leadership perspective has been that if you do not pay attention to your talent, all of the strategy and all of the, uh, all of the programs in the world won't make a difference. Mm -hmm. And that, and that talent, um, attention needs to be placed throughout the system. So it's teacher talent for sure, but it's also leadership talent, both executively leadership as well as what we call middle level leadership. It is board talent and recruiting and and uh, supporting good board members, right. um, and, and so there there is this talent question that I think uh, schools underestimate the power of, and that has been the big aha for me right. since coming to Singapore. And it feels like it's important here for a couple of reasons. One is parents pay a lot to send their kids here, and they're really demanding. We we just met with a, with some parents who had very high expectations for all of their teachers' kids, right? So yep. so parent expectation, but also. There's a a group of teachers that come and go in an international school. And so you do a fair amount of hiring. Yep. And so for both of those reasons, you want to be really, really clear about what what it means to be a good teacher at SAS. And if we look at this from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, we really started on the teacher side of things. So at the very beginning of my tenure here, uh, there was the beginnings of what we call institutional commitments that have now been revised a couple of times. And uh, as well as an evaluation system that's been revised a couple of times, our PLC system, et cetera. And then the discovery was, again, this leadership talent development um, agenda that we began to develop just a couple of, of years ago. And what we found was that if you do the teacher talent work without the middle level leadership work, you are missing a huge opportunity and frankly, a leverage point that will make your teacher work pay off. Right. Um, so I thought maybe Jennifer could speak a little bit about that, those institutional commitments and the teacher work that we've done over the last five years. Yeah, and I, I, one of the things mm-hmm. I would add to the two that you just did about why this is important. So, uh, you know, parent expectation, absolutely. Turnover, absolutely. But also, you know, I think there is our teachers, and I think teachers by large, 
want to really do a good job. They really want to make a difference in the lives of students. Um, and it's easy for systems, I think, to devolve into a culture of fear because teachers are afraid of not living up to expectations. And when those expectations aren't clear, that culture of fear, I think, runs more rampant. And so if you're trying to encourage innovation, you can't do that in a culture full of fear. And so that's another reason why the institutional commitments are so important. And, and so the original version of our institutional commitments, I would say, really were towards your first two purposes. Right. Last year, we went through the process where we actually took a look at the existing institutional commitments, looked at the literature um, and what we've learned about where we're headed. So things around competency-based learning, things around um, inquiry, um, you know, things around um, RTI, and how do we make sure that our institutional commitments really are reflective of the practice we want in the future right. to provide that clarity. So teachers now are like, oh, okay, this is in a practical sense what the vision means, in a practical sense what the strategic plan right. means, and can, can then have, I think, the freedom to, A, make some choices about whether they're on board or not, but if they are on board, which most of our teachers are, be able then to, to say, okay, here's where I know I can play, and here's where I know, like, this is what I have to be doing. Right. And it's very interesting, too, when we think about those institutional commitments, often people go to the technical. Uh, do they teach well? Do they do lesson planning well? Those kinds of things. And in reality, the technical, of course, is required, but it's the, at the attitudinal that is as important as the technical. Am I open to uh, trying new things? Am I willing to speak the truth? Uh, am I, uh, how comfortable am I with ambiguity or even with uh, failure? Um, those are all elements that we believe is part of the package that actually is important when you're thinking about talent. And interestingly, we have a, we have a faculty senate. And even yesterday in the faculty senate, senate what was being surfaced is, what does buy-in mean and what's the evidence of being bought in versus not? And, right. and I talked very specifically about the difference between being a cynic versus a skeptic. We embrace and encourage skepticism and we don't tolerate cynicism. And, and the distinction between those two is very important for us. Uh, um, you have what might be the the um, best developed, maybe most productive um, professional learning communities that I've seen in a, in a school community. You've been doing it for five years. And, and I love how the professional learning communities and the school visits interacted, that mm -hmm. people would go on, on a school visit and then come back and inject that knowledge into their, into their PLC. But it, is it fair to say that those are a really important part of the, what makes this a great school? Yeah, I, I would say that it's um, absolutely foundational. We couldn't do what we're doing today without it. Um, and again, they, they, they've been actually uh, actually in place eight or nine years right. at this point. Um, and when I first arrived in 2012, we were just forming and norming uh, around our PLC practices. And it was really uh, two or three years ago that we started upping the expectations around how they perform. Right. Um, and maybe Jennifer can talk about how we uh, both encourage that, support it, and monitor right. it. So we've been doing a lot of work with our um, PLCs just around 
um, you know, beyond the four questions of what do you expect teens to know and giving them tools for, for that and the assessment tools and the intervention or extension tools, you know, uh, working with them on how do you really establish a good SMART goal and how do you uh, monitor and how do you reflect on yourself. Um, we have mechanisms in place for our administrative team to be able to, so each PLC does a self-assessment and then the admin team does a reflection on that self-assessment and their own data collection. And so we have a monitoring mechanism to see kind of where the, the health of teams and the functionality of teams so that we can intervene as needed um, or we can extend as needed. We have some teams, um, interestingly, as we're moving into some of these interdisciplinary spaces where the current construct of the way they've been thinking about PLC is going to need to evolve. Um, and so the four questions will remain the same, but what those questions are focusing on is going to need to change as interdisciplinary work is being um, focused upon as opposed to disciplinary subjects. Um, so, I mean, I would, I, Chip and I have both said before that, you know, as a school, you know, team trumps talent and that, you know, if you cannot collaborate you should not be here at SAS. And in fact, those that, that tends to be the reason why we let people go is because right. they can't collaborate. And so it's really paying attention to giving teachers the skills to collaborate effectively, not just assume that they can. Right. Um, pay, pay. One of the investments that we've made is you, you don't get a functional PLC by just throwing a group of people in a room and say collaborate. Um, and so we've invested in things like strengths-based training. Um, we've done a, a lot of work um, around some of the uh, some of the table group work um, around building trust in systems, facilitated uh, leadership with Laura Lipton. Yeah, facilitated leadership, uh, fierce conversations. So we've invested in our PLC leadership as well as our PLCs in those constructs, so that they can be as high functioning. As possible. Yeah. Speaking of investing in leadership, um, you made big progress in two years in in distributing leadership and mm -hmm. in both identifying teacher leaders across campus and uh, constructing roles that really lever leverage their talent. Team uh, teacher team leads, uh, subject leads. Um, we we had a chance to meet with them last night. It's a great group, yeah. informed, inquisitive. Uh, it feels like they're really pushing you and and uh, they feel a sense of agency and ownership for the agenda here yeah, yeah. It's been a big advance yeah so you know one of the things that, that we sometimes talk about is that you know if PLCs are the fulcrum of change for for the classroom the middle level leadership is the fulcrum of change for the system uh, without really making those investments and empowering that middle level leadership your ability to change a school, which it tends to be reticent to top-down uh, top work, it becomes nearly impossible. And so we, we, we ended up developing a multifaceted strategy. One is identifying leadership roles across the system uh, and uh, acknowledging them either through role titles or stipending or both. So we literally have 140? Yeah, it's, it's closer to 165. 165 of our 400 teachers 
have official leadership roles in one form or another. It might be a PLC leader, it might be a, a department chair, but, but a hundred, literally 160 of our 400 teachers has, have roles of one form or another. And that was done through the formation of job descriptions, clarity around what the expectations were. So, so that was one strategy. A second strategy was, and that's, the, that's a broader strategy. A deeper strategy was we have one of the only, if the only, doctoral programs on site here through the University of Southern California. And, um, uh, and that, again, was done in collaboration with USC, which uh, we had 16 members of our faculty administration who are now doctorates. So they just we just fin uh, finished graduating our first cohort. And, and that were you, was... Were you in that graduate I was program? in that, yes. Jennifer yes. was. Yes. So it's now Dr. Sparrow. Yes, and yeah. I talked to some of uh, your colleagues that yes, were who are also in, in it. Cohort. Lisa was in it. Tina was in it. What a cool experience. You actually yeah. would fly USC profs. Here. here to teach yeah. some of those classes. Yeah. Right? But more important than flying them here is we would work with the USC professors prior to them coming mm. to ensure that the course content was actually relevant to SAS. Wow. And, um, and then the other element of it was the fact that all of our dissertations were on problems of practice here at SAS right. and potential solutions for how we could address yeah. those problems Such, of practice. Uh, what a cool program. I mean, yeah. a great benefit for the school and and also for the cohort. Yeah. All right, let's shift gears and talk about the second category. I call it care and guidance. Um, you've done a half a dozen things really, really well uh, since I was here. You, you added more social-emotional programming at the elementary level. Mm -hmm. Responsive classroom. And that's worked well? Yeah, I think, you know, we started by um, having responsive classroom training for all of our core homeroom teachers, you know, so um, the self-contained classroom teachers. And uh, that was really well received and implications, uh, you know, right away for things like morning meetings or the way that they use language in the classroom. But what really, I think, made the difference is we now have also trained all of our IAs as well as all of our specialist teachers. So Every adult in the elementary has this common understanding of how to talk to children. And we have, you know, three school rules, be safe, be uh, responsible, and be kind. And so even like myself as essential admin, if I'm walking through and I see behavior, I can refer to one of those rules and reinforce it. Right. And so um, it's, um, I think, had a real impact on how adults are talking to children and how children are responding to adults. One of the things that's probably worth mentioning is that as we looked at schools around the world, we developed what we call our strategic anchors. And our strategic anchors are a culture of excellence, a culture of possibilities, and a culture of extraordinary care. And as we looked at this over 100 schools around the world, there were only a small handful that actually had th all three of those elements present simultaneously. And we believe that the special sauce of SAS and the special sauce of any school is the cross-section of excellence, possibilities, and extraordinary care. And this, this, this um, uh, programming that you just described actually is in that domain of extraordinary care. I'm going to bundle the two together, but I saw evidence of um, better uh, response intervention, mm -hmm. K-12. And then also we were talking about um, 
professional learning communities, question three and four, the mm-hmm. what if kids mm-hmm. don't get it, how do we intervene? And then if, if they already get it, how do we how do we accelerate their learning? But it feels like, you know, despite being a big traditional school that you're you're uh, you're be getting more agile and better responding to the individual needs of kids. Mm-hmm. I concur. Yeah, <laughs> we, we saw evidence of that. And, yeah. and I think some very specific examples, you know, we have become, while we're not perfect by any means, we've become more sophisticated um, at the use of data at the classroom level. So giving pre-assessments, um, using those pre-assessments to inform flexible grouping. Uh, we've looked at ways that we can build into our schedule time for flexible groups to, to meet. So they have, for example, in the elementary um, and in several pockets of the middle school, time built into the day where based on where a child is in relation to whatever they're focused on, here's how we're going to group you differently so that you're getting what we need. So we saw evidence of that when we went into the fifth grade learning space. Right. And we saw that there was one teacher who had kids in math at a certain level and another teacher at a medium level and then two teachers were actually working with that higher end group which is bigger but they were all sharing their kids we're going to come back and talk about how your facilities plan is going to make that even even better yeah and one of the i I think one of the interesting things is that um, many of these things work together so you, for example, I don't believe can have really effective RTI unless you have really effective PLCs, as mm-hmm. an example. Um, you can't have effective PLCs unless you've paid attention to your culture and you have a culture of collaboration and a culture of a willingness to, um, to try things. So these are all the elements that, in my mind, have to come together um, not always as simultaneously, but certainly in a um, uh, it, 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 in a school environment where all of them can be attended to. Otherwise, any single one of them, RTI by itself won't work. But in a, a larger context, it worked really well. And, and can I just add one other piece to this? Is is in many mm-hmm. schools that I've gone to visit. RTI tends to be focused on those kids who need intervention and to make sure that they're getting to the grade level expectation. Um, while we have that population, really our bigger challenge is response to extension right. or, or what are we doing? So really it's looking, I think where, where we're headed is really that language that's response to learning as a proposed to, and so mm. while um, our flexible grouping and these strategies are helping those kids who are maybe the struggling learners, it's also as much a focus on how are we addressing that question for and extending for kids who already know it right. so that they're staying actively engaged. Um, Chip, why did you break uh, college counseling and, and the pastoral care function into in the two. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was driven by um, uh, anecdotes that I was hearing from kids and parents by some extension that was saying, I'm afraid to talk to my counselor about uh, the fact that I'm depressed, I have anxiety, I just broke up with my girlfriend, whatever, uh, whatever that happens to be, because it might end up on my college recommendation and impact my opportunities to go to college. And as a result of that, we believed that 
our kids were being underserved on the social emotional side because they were so worried about the college application process. By breaking those apart, we have very, very focused and deliberate services on the college application process and very focused and deliberate services on the social emotional support side so the kids are getting full support. The other thing that's interesting is that the, 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 the colleges, that college application process is becoming increasingly challenging. Colleges, it's a bit of a moving target. It's increasingly competitive. And there's a nuance to it that really have some specialized skills in the form of a counselor that knows that industry really well. Right. We'll provide better services. And you, you really need to provide global service here. You, mm-hmm. you have families from all over the world and kids aiming at colleges all, all over the world. So it, it's, That's right. it's enormously complicated. You, uh, since I was here, you also added uh, advisory in high school. Yeah. And, and we transformed our home base in middle school to also be an advisory program. Yeah. And, and, and again, you know, if we think about a student or a child holistically, um, it is, again, that intersection of <clears throat> hard work and persistence, which is what contributes to excellence. Uh, it's, it, it, it's that extraordinary care, which is about building relationships so kids are known and well cared for and advocated for. Um, and, and it's that opportunity for kids to do things and try things. If you focus on the academics and neglect the social emotional, you, number one, are going to have kids who are underperforming or secondly, have kids who are dysfunctional. And, and in both cases, that's bad. Right. And so um, we think that – so our advisory program at the high school is designed so that you've got a, a group of kids. Usually it's uh, 8 to 12 kids that are with the same advisor all four years out high school. You build relationships with them. You talk about those uh, non-academic things in, within the context of your advisory. And, and, and that's kind of the first point of intervention, if you will, because what we know is that the data shows us that if a student does not have a, a strong relationship with at least one adult inside the system, they are highly likely to take part in destructive behaviors, whether that's uh, drugs or alcohol or um, sexual promiscuity or whatever. And so we're beginning to address that. And that's done through the, the, the asset work, um, the asset survey. And so we're monitoring that very closely. And advisory begins to, to address that along with our, our uh, PAC counselors, our personal emotional counselors, along with teacher support. So it's a comprehensive system to try and make sure kids have supports. Hey, listeners, wanted to take a quick break from the podcast to give you tips on the next episode you should listen to when you wrap up this one. If you're enjoying learning about Singapore American School, be sure to check out episode 162. It's called Personalize, Learning, and Build Agency by Using the Four PLC Questions. It features Tim Stewart, who wrote the book featured in that podcast while serving as Innovation Officer at Singapore American School. Don't worry about grabbing a pen. As you know, we'll have it linked in the show notes and on our blog at gettingsmart.com. Now let's get back to it. We also are using advisory. Uh, Advisory is the next step to the work that starts with responsive classrooms. So the through thread from preschool to 12 is really the CASEL standards, 
um, or the castle competencies. And so while, um, you know, it, it is a paying attention to that pastoral care aspect, advisory um, is then also carrying on the work of responsive classroom to really be focusing on that social-emotional learning. And, that's, and so there's a very proactive curricular focus in terms of, um, you know, focusing on your strengths or, uh, you know, how do you deal with conflict or what happens when you're feeling stressed and, and teaching specific strategies. Yeah. And the advisory program, uh, once again, emerged from those visits that we did around the world. So if we go back to that, those schools that we saw as the strongest schools in terms of delivering outcomes for kids were those schools that had strong programs like that. So we borrowed from those programs. We asked people who did them well around the world to come and talk to us and advise us. And there's this balance in an an effective advisory between you can be too constrained from a curricular perspective or too loose from a curricular perspective and having a good guiding curriculum to, to, to align to, but not having it be so constrained that you do, don't have some degrees of freedom in what you're doing with your kids. Yeah. Uh, as superintendent, I happen to be involved in an advisory with the high school principal. So we graduated our first group of kids two mm-hmm. years ago. It was awesome. Go to a, a class reunion and, and see those kids. And it, it, it is unbelievably meaningful and impactful. Yeah. And I have a sixth grade um, advisory that I'm That's a great. part of to be able to have that. And, and from a, from the opposite end, being able to watch those kids that are coming in really, really wide eyed and scared to death of middle school within a month feel comfortable right. because they have that community. It's pretty um, powerful. Talk about mentoring. You, you've made that a focal point um, of, of kids both serving as mentors, but also seeking help when and where they, they need it. Mm-hmm. What was the impetus and what, what are you doing on that front? Well, you know, I think part of the thing that we are uh, um, beginning to focus on is, you know, what are those skills that are developed in a student overall that are going to serve them well, both in college and beyond? Things like the ability to network, uh, the, the, the ability to ask for help when they need it. That's actually a skill that can be developed. If you, if you don't have experience in asking for help when you need it and have that be successful, then when the stakes get higher, you're not going to ask for help when, you, when it becomes most important. So that shows itself in a variety of ways. It shows itself, one, through our service program. So kids are involved in service, which, it, which requires both mentoring and being mentees. The second is um, uh, in our Catalyst program, which is our senior project, where kids, for example, one of their requirements is they have to identify a mentor that will come alongside them. And it can't be a teacher and it can't be a parent. So that actually requires them to essentially cold call for mentors, which, again, is a skill that needs to be developed such that they know what it looks like and feels like to have somebody somebody uh, walk alongside them. So those are a couple of examples of mentoring. And then the third area is we have uh, peer support programs uh, so that kids can volunteer to be a part, to come alongside. Because, again, we're a high-transition school. So of the 4,000 students, we have 1,000 new students every year. And so kids who are here can come alongside new students uh, so that they can uh, feel that level of support from peers along the way. So let, let's shift gears and, and um, talk about high-impact instructional strategies. I, I saw a, a lot of progress, uh, particularly on um, inquiry-based learning. We'll start with the 
little kids. Um, I was here right after you had opened uh, your um, early learning center, and it had, <laughs> you just had reconstructed it and, and uh, built it around a, a, a Reggio mm -hmm. um, philosophy, and it sounds like that's gone really well. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that has been really successful about that program is that it's it's one of the places it, it's they're kind of bookends that and quest which is the the kind of equivalent in the high school are the two places on campus where there is direct instruction and direct feedback on what we call our desired student learning results and so it's not just around the um, content knowledge that that's not the the primary Focus instead, it's around collaboration, critical thinking, creativity, um, communication, cultural competence, and the way that the teachers have been able to use the environment as the third teacher and really use provocations and be able the way that they've been able to document the learning in the early learning um, center really is, I think, helping to inform some of what we're doing across the larger school. Um, and, I, and I'll respond to that more uh, from an affect standpoint. Um, so I, I, I had a, a mom come up to me um, a few weeks ago and say, you know, my, my, my daughter keeps crying. And I said, well, what's going on? She says, well, she cries because she can't go to school on Saturdays. <laughs> and when you have that kind yeah. of love for a program through the eyes of children, you know you're doing something right. And from a, just a, a, a now I'll wear my superintendent hat. And when you look at it from a numbers perspective, our program was on the verge of closing uh, because of lack of enrollment. And now it is burgeoning. We've added sections and now we have wait lists in order to get in because parents e quickly recognize based upon the conversations they're having with kids at home about the kind of learning that's actually going on inside of that environment. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting because we're almost causing um, attention for ourselves because they have this really rich inquiry based, very focused on all of our desired student learning outcomes for preschool, pre-K and first grade has adopted many of those practices, or sorry, kindergarten has adopted many of those practices. So they get that three years of this is the SAS experience and, and how do we then continue to scale it up yep. the system? Because the, the children that are being produced as a result of that experience mm -hmm. are deeper thinkers. And how do you continue to evolve their thinking capacity, not just attend to the academic um, core competencies? In middle school, you have something called try time, and that has really matured. What is that? Try time is is a period of personalized inquiry that happens for every student. Uh, we run it through the advisory program, so twice a year. Uh, the, there's an, a special schedule that allows an hour each morning, and kids work with their advisors on a um, project-based inquiry of their choice. Uh, teachers guide the process to the extent that the child needs it. So some kids are able to do it through a more um, independent structure. Other students need some heavy scaffolding. Um, and really, it, it's looking, it's having kids question something, it's having them investigate their question, it's having them create something in, as a response to it, and then reflect. And the there each of the the time periods last around six weeks, and so kids are doing this every day. Everything from in, in my my 
advisory um, last year. You know, I had one kid who wanted to shave a minute off of his mile time. I had one kid who wanted to be able to uh, learn to shoot seven out of 10 hoops. Um, I had a girl who, a boy and a girl who across home bases decided that they wanted to talk their um, apartment complex management into setting up a recycling bin. Um, We had a, a girl who had decided that um, she really likes one of the um, dog rescues here. And so she had investigated with them what, because you're not allowed to volunteer here unless you're 14. And so she wasn't old enough to volunteer. So she had engaged in inquiry around what could she be doing. So, you know, we've had kids who've built um, kayaks. We've had kids who've built harps. Um, you know, so, so there's, there's really no limit to what they're deciding. The amount of cardboard that we go through during this period of time is extraordinary because um, of the prototyping. Uh-huh. I think for me, one of the interesting things, and you look at this K-12, is that we are now in an environment where no question is, is, is an unfair question to ask. Uh, I literally had a four-year-old from our um, early learning program, make an appointment with me, of course, with the help of a teacher, um, and want to talk to me about why uh, he had to get up so early to come to school and came with a proposed bus schedule, (laughs) a four-year-old, to our high school students who are literally putting satellites into space and with scientific experimentation to our middle schoolers who are doing things, everything from social responsibility to STEM-oriented projects to those things that are artistic to those things that are simply a passion or interest. So it's that question asking that is incredibly powerful across the system. Yeah, can, can I just add to this, though, that, you know, for Try Time to be successful, um, one of the things that we had to really think about was how to support the teachers because giving up ownership in your classroom of the content and the projects that are going to be done is not something that most teachers have experience or a skill to do. So we actually um, spent uh, about a year creating an online resource um, that for each of those four years of of, um, question, investigate, create, and reflect, there's resources for teachers to be able to tap into. And then we actually release teachers for a, a day of training. And during that day, our instructional coaches took them through a try time project of their own. So our faculty then made a decision, hey, I'm going to try to learn to cook this or sew this or do this yoga pose or whatever it might be so that they actually had the personal experience. And so to move towards this level of scale of personalized inquiry requires you to be really intentional of the structures and the supports behind the scenes because the the where some of the schools we went to that were doing this level of personalized inquiry, it really became just kind of a free-for-all and the quality of what was produced and the quality of the learning experience was really varied and we want to make sure that there's a level playing field for the the kid experiences. One of the things that you started with was that we are in implementation stage and one of those challenges is implementing to scale. One of the things that our middle school did particularly well is they developed a communication strategy with moms and dads at home, which was particularly effective. So when they're in the try time, that six-week period of try 
time during try time. Teachers actually have kids communicate every day what they have accomplished in their try time project to mom and dad. Yeah. And, 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 and as we are looping parents in, again, keeping in mind that we're a highly academically focused institution. So when you are doing something like try time, it can leave the impression that you're not right. doing academics. Just doing fun time. Right. right. But in reality, it is very <clears throat> academically oriented. But, but parents need to know that. So, so again, the middle school in particular did a phenomenal job of developing communication strategies with our parents so they know what's going on almost on a daily basis. And they're hearing it from their kid. They're not hearing it from the teacher. Jennifer, the, you, you have an interesting view of, of inquiry and um, forms of, of inquiry-based learning and, like, who's in the driver's seat. Yeah. So we, um, we had spent time really identifying what does inquiry mean for us. And, you know, so if you look at, we, we deliver U.S. curricular frameworks. So we have, you know, C3, NextGen, uh, we have Common Core, and all of them have this philosophy of inquiry embedded. So we had to decide what was that SAS philosophy. And so, as I mentioned, you know, question, investigate, create, and, and reflect is kind of the essence of that. What we also recognized through that conversation is that kids nor adults will be successful if you just say, go forth and do this. So we have three tiers, and this actually comes out of the work of Trevor McKenzie. Um, we we SASified his construct, but it really is around... First, you start with direct inquiry, and so that's very much teacher-driven, but it still is going through that process of those four steps of question, investigate, um, create, and reflect. So, for example, Reader Writer's Workshop is often direct inquiry. Then we have opportunities for what we call shared inquiry, and that's where it's co-constructed. So maybe um, um, investigative unit in science or maybe an inquiry unit in social studies where they're co-creating something around you know, water sustainability. Um, and then the last type is personalized inquiry. And that is where um, the student is really in the driver's seat um, in terms of content, in terms of pacing, in terms of product. And even within that construct of personalized inquiry, if, if there's students who maybe are struggling with executive functioning skills or maybe students who um, have other things happening in their lives that are prohibiting them from really taking that ownership. We have scaffolds in place um, so that kids can be successful. But but the belief across our system is that to be successful in things like try time and, and catalyst and quest, they kids have to have exposure to this this direct and the shared inquiry so that it's that gradual release to this way of thinking. So speaking of. Um, personalized inquiry catalyst is now a graduation requirement. That's is it a, a semester or a year? Uh, it's a semester. Uh, it's typically done during the senior year, but kids can also do it during uh, the junior year. Um, and, and again, I think the design challenge for us is how do you do this to scale, and how do you retain quality? And, um, and we think that we, our team has done a phenomenal job uh, around doing that. Part of it was having really good criteria around what a quality catalyst project looks like, um, lots of deep work around that, and then and providing support systems for kids. So, so these, these are student-directed projects. Yep. And is it pretty open-ended in terms of what they take on? It is. It is. Um, some of them do things that are very related to their academic uh, profile, and some of them do some things that are very much not related. And, you know, literally we have people who are from starting businesses 
to um, uh, doing entrepreneurial work. So one of our students who, who ended up at, at Stanford um, created a, a, a project called the Inky Warmer, which was a, a low-cost incubator uh, for mm-hmm. kids. It was inspired by it out of, out of India. And you've got another student who I interviewed who had, uh, was on a team of kids who had started a business. And he, um, I asked him about his project, and he said, asked his role, and he says, well, I got fired. And I said, well, what do you mean you got fired? He says, yeah, I wasn't pulling my weight on the mm-hmm. team. And my best friend, who was the president of this company that I, we had started, fired me. And so I went on to say, so what did you learn from that? And he went into a, a, a diatribe about, I learned about what it takes to be a successful employee. I learned how to rebuild a relationship after I've destroyed one with one of my best mm-hmm. friends. I learned about work ethic. I, and, 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 and that is the learning. Yeah, that's that's what's golden. beautiful about it. And, and it was learning through failure, which was part of the point of Catalyst. So uh, uh, one of the most ambitious changes that you have been through is that uh, you, you were really a leading AP factory. There, there's very few schools around the world that had more kids taking more AP classes successfully. And since I was here last, you really scaled that back. You replaced, strategically replaced a number of AP courses with um, advanced topic courses, teacher created courses, courses constructed with a college faculty. And as I understand it, you've done that where you thought you could do a better job than AP was doing. You've, you've backfilled some places where there were gaps in advanced placement. And now you've got more than 20 advanced topic courses and you still have uh, 20 AP courses. Yeah, correct. So, so uh, it, it, um, I've heard parent feedback that it, it's um, been very successful. In, in terms of offering better, rigorous courses, more challenging uh, across the dimensions that we know are really mm-hmm. important, but it's also been a bit controversial. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I suspect you can imagine uh, saying to a very ambitious uh, uh, school uh, in Asia that um, we're going to begin cutting back on the AP could be controversial, as you imagine it has been. So maybe the place to start is where did this come from? As we were doing these visits of schools around the world, we also were visiting with college admissions officers because one of the non-negotiables for us was that no matter what we do in our curriculum, in our programming, we, we agreed that we would not diminish students' opportunities to successfully get into college. And what college admissions officers were telling us fairly consistently was that um, they they want pointy kids. And, and what we mean by that is, of course, they want kids who um, are capable of doing college-level work and need to demonstrate that pretty robustly, but also kids who can demonstrate an area of interest, an area of expertise, an area of passion. And we need to provide opportunities for do that to do that. The other thing we heard fairly consistently was that while our kids are very capable, they weren't all that interesting. So a, a student with a pile of AP courses, but nothing else, it looks just like a student in the suburbs of Chicago or LA or San Francisco, and that we needed to have our kids be more distinctive. The only way, if you think about supply and demand, that you can do that is by 
creating a, a cap, if you will, on AP so they'll have the opportunity to do these other courses, which are rigorous, which are college level, which are co-developed with college professors, and in some cases um, are, as you suggest, better than the AP programming, and in other cases are, are things that the AP programming doesn't offer. So, for example, we offer an AP, a, AT physics course that has computational physics as a portion of that course, which is absent in the AP coursework. In another instance, we offer AT kinesiology, which is, there's nothing like it in the AP curriculum. And AT kinesiology is a great course for those kids that might be interested in sports medicine. We're in a collaboration with a university that, that is going to supply university credit for that course in high school. And so that's the package that, that we're offering. What we've heard from, again, uh, university admissions officers is once you show a student taking five or six AP courses, they know that they know how to do AP and they want them doing other things. The diminishing returns. And, and what you had worldwide, but particularly in schools like SAS, of students killing themselves to get 12 AP courses yeah. or, or more. Yes, that's right. Right. And so you're, you're trying to limit that behavior yep. um, and and really encourage um, better classes that better reflect uh, the outcomes that we know are important for college and careers. That's right. That's right. Um, it's That's been a, a tough slog for you, but it uh, it feels like great, great progress. The, um, the last academic area that um, you're making great progress on is uh, uh, around competency-based learning. You really, you've, you've been updating your, uh, the outcomes. You, you've you've mm -hmm. uh, drafted a great framework of competencies and skills, and you're starting to introduce those to, to faculty. That feels like that work will frame the next years to come. I think it will, definitely. I think, you know, one of the, we, we have said for, well, it's been eight years now that we've had our desire to learn outcomes in place. So we've said for eight years that things like critical thinking and collaboration and, and cultural competence, um, creativity are core to the, ex to the experience of our kids. And yet how that has happened has been very um, haphazard in, in many respects or has been very um, Oh, uh, covert instead of overt, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to ask you to collaborate, but we're not actually going to teach you how to collaborate. And so I think what the competencies are going to really allow us to do is to give teachers the language and the understanding of what something like critical thinking means from a skills perspective that then is broken down into kind of a novice to expert continuum um, so that um, it's making visible for them what these skills mean, which then is going to impact how they're able to talk to kids about it and how they're able to give feedback and how they're able to, um, you know, focus on assessments. And that, that's an area that's really not only missing, I think, from SAS, but I think from schools in general. And, and I, would, I would say that if, if, if we have a vision of a personalized learning experience for kids, which is not new, this has been in the educational ecosystem for 200 years. I think the only way to do that with, without staffing a school where you have one teacher for every kid is by creating competencies and assessments that are flexible, 
robust and consistent that can be moved in and out of the system so that a kid can develop a pathway that will lead them to their ultimate goal. And so this foundational work that, that um, Jennifer and her team have been really aggressively getting after, I think provides the basis for which personalized learning may actually be possible. You know, it, 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 we've, we've talked a couple times in the last few days about how practical this gets when you talk to a parent. We, we just met with a parent who said, I, I have a student who's struggling on some dimensions and, and ready to do work three or four years above grade level mm-hmm. in other. And, and right now we have a traditional structure that makes that really difficult. Right. right? We're asking teachers to do very difficult things because the system doesn't support that learner. So um, the, the challenge for you and, and other schools like you is uh, building systems that are more responsive to those kids that have those jagged profiles. Yeah. And, you know, if, if there's anything that I've learned out of the last five years as we've been really trying to um, scale implementation of these innovations is that the importance of SASifying anything and so, you know, one of the, so when we went to all of these other schools, I mean, there were some great, you know, you could pick this platform for this school or you right. could pick this advisory program for that school. But we have to really be able to be willing to look at it as critical consumers to say, right. this is how this fits here in the SAS context. And all right. Last topic. I'm, um, I'm super jazzed about the Pathfinder spaces that we, that we saw. Um, you are doing... What I think is the the best example of facilities action research that I've ever seen. We visited a lot of classrooms that you've renovated over the summer, um, and I, I I called it uh, a great example of a, a a project that is both investigating questions of uh, uh, around the new facility and simultaneously illustrating uh, what's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's really not just a facilities issue. It's not just about space and furniture. Mm-hmm. It's how that interacts with the learning model. Because mm-hmm. we, we saw teachers interacting with each other in new and different ways. We saw the ways in which these new flexible learning spaces were enabling flexible grouping. So a, a super exciting program. Um, how, how many of these new learning spaces do you have on campus? So all of our kindergarten um, is is in some form of it with a variation of the extent of the remodel, but all of, so we have um, four, yeah, we, so we have yep. uh, four hubs of two plus our two immersion classes. And then we have a fifth grade learning community, um, all three of our sixth grade learning communities. And then we've um, created a learning community in the high school for interdisciplinary humanities. And then um while it's not exactly the same, I would also categorize our quest and our catalyst spaces, spaces yeah. to yeah. be. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, what's interesting about this uh, innovation is you know, it really is the marriage of the facility with the pedagogy that's really important. And when we think about some of our objectives, um, if you go back to Peter Senge's work of the 1980s, where he coined the phrase systems learn, this is about our system learning along the way. So that was one objective is what are we going to learn about these innovations that will inform before we spend hundreds of millions of dollars, we can spend small amounts of money to learn, have the system learn. Secondly is teachers learn. 
So what do teachers, so I'll use a very specific example. In our kindergarten um, uh, Pathfinder space, there was a long discussion about movable walls Do we and, and what that looks like. And we put in a movable wall, um, and, and this for the sake of the conversation, it's a $10,000 wall. And what they learned from that is they don't need a movable wall in every room. Well, if we had scaled that, to 100 classrooms, that $10,000 wall is a very expensive, non-usable thing that we would have put into a new building because teachers hadn't learned that yet. Right. And then third is parents learn. So as we are doing these spaces, parents are better informed about what it is that we're doing pedagogically because they can see it and touch it and feel it. And there's that tactileness to, to a parent buying into what it is we're doing because, again, these are tuition-paying parents with choices. And so between those three elements, the Pathfinder projects have paid off tremendously yeah, well. It's really exciting and a great way to investigate real questions of practice. Um, in sixth grade, you're investigating whether math should be integrated, integrated into or, a pod or separate and uh, whether there ought to be glass walls or movable walls. And so both questions of around the learning model and also questions around the facility. We saw lots of examples of uh, new seating, um, hard and soft high and low, uh, super flexible environments where we'd, we'd come into a classroom uh, one minute and it was divided and we'd go down the hall and then we'd come back and, uh, and the walls were gone and there was a, a, a new layout. So it, it was really exciting to see. I think the other thing, though, in addition to helping us learn um, for before we move into the launch of this whole new um, campus is the fact that in the moment, teachers are learning in ways that are profound. And so, you know, for every teacher who is in one of these learning communities, the feedback that they've given is it's never been more terrifying because they're always being seen by their colleagues, but it also has never been more professionally enriching because they're always learning from their colleagues. And, and that level of transparency of practice, um, the feedback we're getting is that is the best PD that they've ever experienced. And some of the pedagogical practices that we know are really important, like flexible grouping, right. there's an ease to that now and a fluidity to that, which our teams, our teachers who are in the mm. single cell classrooms have to put more planning into it and they have to like figure out what the right time, whereas in, in the moment it can happen in some of these groups. Right. Um, and so there's a lot more PLCs are living, I think, to a degree that really is actualizing the four questions on a real-time basis that single-cell classrooms aren't allowing. And so there's that profound impact on practice today. One of the things that's also asked, we get this asked a lot, is how is this different than the open classroom mm -hmm. concept of the 1970s, which was a, a mitigated disaster across the United States. And, and actually, SAS had open classrooms in the 1970s. And I think, I think there's a few things that did make it distinctively different. One is that we're marrying pedagogy with facilities, and the open classroom concept, less so. Second is that uh, materials are different. The technology, if you will, quote unquote, around facilities is broadly different. So you can deal with acoustics more effectively. Right. No, I, yeah. I told Jennifer that we, we stood in the middle of three different 
breakout groups uh, happening simultaneously, and it was very quiet. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So it, the floor, the floors are different, the ceilings are different, the furniture is different, and it just yeah. makes yeah. it um, a, a, a very conducive environment for many different kinds of learning. Yeah. Yeah. So you know the, what we're saying because people will often go to open classroom. We're not doing open classroom. We're doing flexible classrooms right. where any kind of space is configurable in a very short period of time, depending right. on what the learning needs are at any given time. Uh, Chip and Jennifer, just congratulations on all the progress that you guys have uh, have made in in the last six years, but particularly in the last two years yeah. since I, I was here. So much progress on so many fronts. Um, you've, you've learned from so many schools around the world and then you've, you've made it your own. And in doing so, I think you're doing some of the most important uh, work in the world. And a lot of us appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Okay. So we know that that was a longer episode than normal, but what'd you think? That's a lot of progress in six years and the competency framework and the Pathfinder space projects set the stage for the next six years of work that's going to happen at Singapore American school. It's true, Jess. I really love listening to Tom, Chip, and Dr. Sparrow share the Singapore American story. All right, listeners, that's all we have for you today. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of our future episodes. Yes, and while you're at it, leave us a review. We love hearing what you think of the podcast, and it helps us get better. Thanks for tuning in today. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Caroline. And Jessica. Signing off.